This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast, number 212, Tolerance. I'm Hal Hammonds, Citizen of Heaven, your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for listening, rating, and subscribing. Tolerance is in short supply these days, especially with the people who are always preaching tolerance. I hope I didn't just condemn myself there. This week we will discuss the problems tolerance brought to the church in Thyatira back in the day and that might pop up in our churches today. Crazy beliefs we will accept in our heroes and whether that's a good thing. The secret to dealing with selfish people both on the road and in the pew. And the game I was glad to play once with my daughter who loves me too much to ask me to play again. We'll start with what I've been preaching. Revelation 2, 18-23 reads, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this, I know your deeds, and your love, and faith, and service, and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray, so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. Wow, that's pretty intense language. This is a book, remember, that prominently features the dragon, which represents the devil himself. It also describes in some detail the famous beast of chapter 13 and the false prophet that does his bidding. And nowhere in the book are any of them described with language like what Jesus uses to describe Jezebel. Jezebel, of course, gets her name from the wife of Ahab, as described throughout the latter half of the book of 1 Kings. She is credited with encouraging the nation of Israel to adopt the gods of her homeland, and either marginalize or outright reject the one true God. Her name is attached to the false teacher in Thyatira because the two women had much the same effect. Because of Jezebel, the brethren had refused to stand against their culture as Jesus required. The story of Jezebel puts the lie to the idea of tolerance being some sort of acceptable middle ground. Certainly we should not encourage Jezebel, some may have been saying, but maybe we shouldn't shut her up either. After all, who are we to judge in such matters? The argument hasn't changed much in 2,000 years, has it? But tolerating false teaching is itself, according to the Lord, not to be tolerated. This woman bore children, presumably those who picked up her doctrine and began preaching it themselves. If actions have consequences, non-actions have consequences as well. Tolerating false teaching was going to have ramifications in Thyatira for multiple generations. By not making a decision, they made a decision, a bad one. Jesus could not have been more clear on the subject. He is the only way, according to John 14.6. Simply calling oneself a Christian is not enough, according to Matthew 7.21. Obedience to his word is mandatory, according to Luke 6.46. You're either for him or against him, according to Matthew 12.30. I could go on and on, but you get the point. Compromise is not an acceptable option. And if you're willing to write yourself a hall pass because of your particular circumstances, I encourage you to read Revelation again. Your challenges are no greater than theirs. Their warning is your warning. The apostles dealt with no topic so often as the topic of apostolic authority. Peter and John repeatedly leaned on their experience with the Lord and their special mandate to carry out his message. 
Paul, also a witness of the risen Lord, insisted to the Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, and Colossians that Jesus is all we need and that any message apart from the one he gave is anathema. But what if the Jezebel among us isn't quite so bold? Maybe instead of advocating adultery, she's simply arguing to let it alone. Isn't that what some of our brethren are doing when they refuse to take a position on marriage, divorce, and remarriage? After all, Jesus took a position. He lines it out nicely for us in Matthew 9, verses 3 through 12. Is it okay for us to loose where he is bound, or bind where he's loose, for that matter? And what does it say about the modern Jezebel who, when confronted with clear Bible teachings, refuses to repent? Examine your teachers, including this one. If they draw you to Jesus, hold up their hands. If they ask you to compromise the teachings of Jesus, they are Jezebel. Throw them into the bed of sickness before they have even more children. This is what I've been reading. Regrace is a book written by Frank Viola, the evangelical blogger, not the former Major League Baseball pitcher. It is subtitled, What the Shocking Beliefs of the Great Christians Can Teach Us Today. The purpose of the book, and I quote Viola in his own words, is, quote, to foster grace, civility, and tolerance among Christians when they disagree with one another over theological matters, end quote. Your reaction to that statement's likely much like mine. Just exactly what theological matters are we referring to here? Here's some examples. Charles Spurgeon thought he could smoke cigars to the glory of God. Augustine believed it was wrong to have sex for any reason other than procreation, even for married Christians. C.S. Lewis believed some unbelievers would have an opportunity to be saved even after death. I might characterize such beliefs as eccentric or incorrect, but I'm not sure souls are going to be lost in hell because they heard them espoused by a trusted religious leader. On the other hand, Martin Luther regretted that more Jews had not been slaughtered for rejecting Jesus. John Calvin's influence in Geneva, Switzerland led 139 people to be executed for religious crimes. Billy Graham and Robert Schuller believed Jesus could enter the heart of good-hearted Muslims or Buddhists and save them without them ever acknowledging him as Savior. You might feel differently about listening to teachers like that. Viola admits to what the modern generation might call clickbait. He admits some of the doctrines are more shocking than others, and that he himself actually agrees with some of them. His point is that we extend respect and honor to stalwarts of the faith who held all sorts of doctrinal and moral positions in their day, and that we should be just as patient and tolerant of those who teach and practice differently than we do today. The thinking seems to be, and pardon me, Mr. Viola, if I misrepresent, that Billy Graham and Charles Spurgeon and Martin Luther are clearly great Christians. They all had kind of goofy ideas here and there, so we shouldn't draw lines of fellowship when we disagree with one another. This argument has two enormous holes in it. The first is assuming that preacher fill-in-the-blank must be right with God. But how could you possibly suggest that Martin Luther might not be saved, you might ask? Look at all the good he did for the cause of Christ. And obviously, I can't take issue with that. But does it strike anyone as odd that we might make that argument for Martin Luther, of all people? the man who had a problem with the entire book of James because it emphasized salvation by works. If Martin Luther has proved his worth to God by what he accomplished, you're saying Martin Luther is saved by works. Luther would have you stoned for that, by the way, after he cussed you up and down. We don't get to heaven by being called great by other Christians. We get in, if we get in at all, by grace. 
The second problem is the fact that virtually everyone who wears the name of Jesus draws lines of fellowship in one place or another. Biola says nothing about the teachings of Mary Baker Eddy or Charles Taze Russell or Joseph Smith or Garner Ted Armstrong or David Koresh. And the reason would seem relatively obvious. Leaders like these and dozens of others appeal to a narrow band of believers. The average evangelical reader out there sees no need to find common ground with Jehovah's Witnesses or Latter-day Saints, and neither, it seems, does Viola. When it comes right down to it, everyone who calls himself or herself a Christian will agree with what Jesus said in Matthew 7.21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Okay, let me clarify that a bit. Everyone would agree with the first part of Jesus' statement there. There might be a bit of pushback regarding obedience, but you take my meaning. Some people wear the name, but they don't really live the life. In the end, God will be the judge. The Lord knows those who are his, according to 2 Timothy 2.19. But that verse goes on to say, everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. How much wickedness, you may ask? And the answer is obvious, as much as you can. I say all that to say this. I don't know how flexible God is going to be with doctrinal matters, moral matters, or practical matters in the Day of Judgment. I do know, according to Matthew 7, 22 and 23, plenty of so-called believers are going to be left out. My job is not to tell you whether you are or are not one of them. My job is to get you to realize that all human teachers, including this one, are flawed, and that popular consensus has nothing to do with your salvation. Trust in Jesus. Judge righteous judgment and pray for wisdom. This is what I've been hearing. So you're driving down the road, minding your own business, just trying to get from here to there. All of a sudden, you run into a bad driver. Not literally, no actual collision, but only because you were paying attention. Maybe they cut you off. Maybe they ran a red light. Maybe they couldn't decide what lane they wanted to be in. You start wondering if the state has started putting driving licenses in cereal boxes. What do you do? You very well may do what I did for 30 years. You blow your horn. Surely they are unaware of their poor driving skills, and a quick blast from a car horn is exactly what is required to teach them better. Or how about this? A crazy driver behind you is riding your bumper, and you decide to tap your brakes. Or an impatient driver is trying to pass you on the shoulder and you decide to edge over to block him. In reality, you're just venting your spleen at an objectively bad person. But part of you legitimately thinks you can improve the quality of the drivers in your county by demonstrating your level of frustration to them in nonverbal ways. Now, sometimes the nonverbal communication leads to verbal communication. Maybe you've been there too. Everyone rolls down their windows and starts patiently explaining their point of view in a calm tone of voice, and eventually everyone comes to an agreement on who was to blame, and that person sincerely apologizes. Or like it happens here on planet Earth, there's yelling and screaming, and occasionally a cup of soda thrown at someone's windshield, or much, much worse. Here's something else you could try, something I've been working on for a few years now and getting great results with. You do nothing. Absolutely nothing. You don't honk. You don't yell. You don't wave. You don't take down his license plate and report him to the sheriff. You do nothing. And guess what the offender in question does when you do nothing? That's right. 
Nothing. He doesn't learn anything, but then he wasn't going to learn anything anyway, really. And get this, he doesn't honk at you. He doesn't stop his vehicle and yell at you. He doesn't pull out a gun or a tire iron and take it to the next level. He does nothing. You experience a bit of angst for a second or two, and then life goes back to normal, and you never see that person again. That's not so bad, right? Hal, you make a great point, you say. But what if it's not a stranger on the road? What if it's an annoying Christian I see every week? Well, that depends. If it's a real sin we're talking about, if someone's actually hurting you, then do the Matthew 18, 15 thing. But I'll be honest with you. Most of the issues I have seen that set brethren at odds with one another haven't been sin issues, at least not in the way we usually think of sin issues. It's more along the lines of inconsideration, perceived slights, missed opportunities for kindness, general self-centeredness, that sort of thing. In those situations, and take my experience for whatever it may be worth, it's better to work on your own intolerance than on whatever problem your brother or sister may seem to have. Say you have someone at church who insists on putting the thermostat a degree below where you want it, or they sit where you want to sit, or they linger in pointless conversations longer than you would like. Is that selfishness on their part? Perhaps. But isn't it just as selfish for you to ask them to change? Why is it bad for the other person to get their way, but it's perfectly normal for you to want to get your way? Someone is going to have to find some tolerance. And the only person you can work on is you. So, work on you. For more than 30 years now, I've been preaching on Ephesians 5.21 and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And for more than 30 years now, Christians have fussed that they were suffering because other Christians were violating that passage. Brother X is wrong because he won't subject himself to me. That is not what Paul was getting at. Ephesians 5.21 is not a spear to throw at an errant brother or sister in Christ. Ephesians 5.21 is a mirror, a challenge, intended to prompt each Christian, including you, to put others first. As a Christian, you serve Jesus, you fear Him, you honor Him. And the best way to honor Him is to choose the life that He lived, the life of service. Don't fuss about the way someone has made a mess of washing your feet, you wash their feet. Don't whine about not getting your way, do as Paul writes in Philippians 2 verses 3 and 4, Regard them as more important than yourself. And here's where it works even better in the church than it does on the road. Your politeness and selfishness will almost certainly have zero effect on the rotten drivers of the world. And if somehow you do help them out, you'll never know about it. But if you tolerate your brother's weaknesses and flaws with patience and kindness, it very well may have an effect on him. It's not a sure thing, but it's a possibility. And worst case, you're not suffering any more than Jesus suffered for you. This is what I've been playing. My daughter Kylie saw Happy Little Dinosaurs on the game store shelf and absolutely had to have it. Keep in mind, this is the girl who has a half a dozen Winnie the Poohs on her bed. If a game has a 9 plus cuteness factor, Kylie will play it at least once. Well, Happy Little Dinosaurs is the cutest game Kylie's ever seen, so she bought it. With her own money, I feel compelled to add. And of course, we learned it and played it for one reason and one reason only. I love my daughter. It gave her pleasure. That's what dads do. One of these days, I'll feature my experience with Pretty Pretty Princess, and you'll see how far I'm willing to stretch this point. But that's for another day. I want to say Happy Little Dinosaurs is just a bad game. 
That's probably not fair. It's a kid's game. The box says 8+, plus, meaning it is suitable for humans aged 8 and up. To me, it's more of a 10-. minus. But Kylie is very much in tune with her inner child while functioning very capably as a grown woman. That's not a bad thing. So I was more than willing to play Happy Little Dinosaurs with her. Once. I'm not telling you this to pat myself on the back for my tolerance. I'm telling you this to pat Kylie on the back for not pressing the point. The subject of us all playing Happy Little Dinosaurs has not come up since that first playthrough. I made my feelings about the game quite clear back then, and she respected my judgment on the matter. Case closed. She hung onto the game, of course, and she's found a kindred spirit or two out there who she's got to play with her. More power to her. Hey, maybe one of these days she'll give me some grandchildren so she'll have someone to play Happy Little Dinosaurs with. I have no issue with that. Tolerance is a gift. We request it from every person we meet in one way or another. It's all part of living in a society. Your behavior will not meet your neighbor's standards. If he's a good neighbor, he will tolerate your uncut lawn, your children's loud birthday parties, your ridiculously over-the-top Christmas decorations, or lack thereof, depending on his preference and yours. You should be grateful for that. In fact, you should say so from time to time. What you should not do is press your luck. Be grateful for his tolerance, and then try not to take it too much for granted. I play a silly game with my daughter for the same reason she doesn't ask me to do it very often. She values our relationship more than the game. And I value our relationship more than I love the thought of the game dying in a fire. And it may be that your eccentricities are rubbing your neighbor the wrong way more than you realize. It's just that he values the friendship too much to say anything. That is something to honor and celebrate, not exploit. I'm going to ask you to do something pretty difficult for me here, but do your best. I want you to think about a relationship in your life, your spouse, your neighbor, a brother or sister in Christ, doesn't matter. Think about the conflicts you have with that person and how they tend to get resolved. Who picks the lunch spot? Who takes the good parking place? Who asks for more favors? If you just said, me, me, and me, I suggest you deliberately set the other person up for success the next time. Go out of your way to pursue their interest even if they're not making a fuss about it. Or to use Jesus' words from Luke 14, 10 and 11, but when you're invited, go and recline at the last place so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus was not giving you instructions here on how to win the best neighbor award and I'm not either. He was saying, Consistently pursuing your own agenda has long-term consequences. The honor you claim for yourself can be taken away. The honor given to you by your neighbor and by God is real. Getting your way all the time is fun, but building real and lasting relationships is better. Choose the better path. It's good exercise and restraint now, and it's a good investment in people that will pay off later. Thank you for listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Please rate, review, and share so others can access this content. I encourage you also to join the Heaven Citizens Facebook group. There you will find links to related materials, conversation starters, poll questions, and the occasional special announcement. Also, check out the Hal Hammonds channel on YouTube for even more content. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. 
This is Hal Hammond's Citizen of Heaven signing off. <laughs>